Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be back. Feels like it's been a month since we've been together. Has kind of been a month. Well, a couple of Sundays ago, I was watching the final Dallas Cowboy game, which is so strange because they won. You know, it's weird. You win, and you win big, and yet somehow you're out of the, out of the picture. Well, I saw a commercial during the, during the game that um, caught my attention. I don't remember what they were selling, but the phrase at the very end, in fact, I think they even had it on the screen. It said something like, the future is yet to be written, dot, dot, dot. And out loud, I said, oh, that's wrong. Now, what they meant was okay. I think the idea is, you know, hey, you got a new year in front of you. You know, we don't know exactly what's happened. There's so much potential for you. It's yet to be written. But the fact is, the future's already written. It just, just remains to be seen how we, will, how we will participate in it and exactly how it will unfold. It sort of reminds me of when William Shakespeare would take familiar stories and then write his plays to them. Like, if I'm not mistaken, Romeo and Juliet, he didn't invent that story. You know, it, was, it was a story that was well known, but Shakespeare took and put his spin on it. So everybody knows how Romeo and Juliet is going to end. The, but what we didn't know is the creative way in which it would happen. When we look at the Bible, the Bible tells us how it's all going to end. The Bible gives us the, the, the good news that in the end, God wins. In fact, he's already won. And that we who love Jesus Christ right along with him get to share in that joy. But what the Bible doesn't tell us is all the millions of details of how we get there. And for us, that's the joy and also the terror of trying to figure out and to wait upon the Lord. Do you remember the, the toy that was called Magic 8-Ball? Don't raise your hand because it would be embarrassing if you actually bought one. But I'll tell you, I had one. When I was a kid, I had a Magic 8-Ball. And what they were were these little, I couldn't tell if it was a bowling ball or if it was supposed to be an 8-Ball, but it was a little oversized 8-Ball that had this window in it. And you'd kind of shake up the 8-Ball the and then this floating dice sort of inside would have different answers. And you'd ask questions to the Magic 8-Ball. You know, like, will I get such and such for Christmas? And then, you know, mine always said, not likely. <laughs> uh, every, almost every time I'd ask it a question, not like. And so finally I thought, you know, I'm going to try this. Magic 8-Ball, can you tell me the future? And once again, not likely. <laughs> I think I looked at their advertising, and of course their disclaimer is, we can't tell the future. You know, this is just for fun. And yet, believe it or not, about 2% of Americans believe that the Magic 8-Ball can predict the future, in spite of its own claims. Uh, USA Today had a poll taken not long ago that said 3% of people in America believe the prophecies of the Ouija board, 16% believe psychics, 21% believe astrologers, 22% believe the Farmer's Almanac. We still have the Farmer's Almanac? 49% believe biblical prophecies. Well, that's an upward trend. I saw a frank and earnest cartoon that showed this uh, shabby sort of uh, prophet-looking guy with a sandwich board. 
and the sandwich board on the front said, world ends soon. And Frank is just standing there looking at him, and, and Frank says, so what's your point? I thought, boy, that's insightful. Because it's one thing to say, here's what happens in prophecy. It's another thing to say, so what? If this is what prophecy tells us about the future, what does that have to do with me today? The world ends soon. Okay, so what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? And it's a great question because who cares about tomorrow? How is that relevant for me today? And not only that, how can I know that your sandwich board is true when this guy over here has a sandwich board that's contradicting you? And we've got 10 other people telling me this is what the future holds. How do I know what the future really holds? If the Bible tells us that here's what's going to happen in the future, how do we know that Scripture is true and all the other religions or prophecies are not true? Well, the test of a true prophet is pretty simple. Does what they predict come true? That's it. I mean, if you're a true prophet, what you prophesy comes true. And if it doesn't come true, well, then you're not a true prophet. And if this is the test, and it is, then that eliminates the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, the horoscopes, the fortune tellers, and all others who make even minor errors, because it eliminates all but one. The Bible's predictions have never missed it. Not once. Not yet. It has predicted just regarding Jesus Christ, just to narrow it down to that subject, where he would be born, the fact that he would be born of a virgin, where, uh, 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 that he would be raised, exactly how he would die. In fact, crucifixion was predicted even before crucifixion existed in the Scripture, just to name a few. And the odds of these predictions coincidentally coming true of just one person make them so far-fetched that it's impossible unless the Bible is actually telling the truth. The odds are in our favor. Interesting, one quarter of the Bible was prophetic at the time that it was written. So if you just look at your Bible and imagine one quarter of what's sitting in your lap was prophecy at the time that it was written. Some of it's been fulfilled, but some of it is yet to be fulfilled. And that is what we want to focus on here for the next few weeks. So turn with me in the Bible to John chapter 14. Now we're going to take quite a few passages today, so just be patient as we work through some passages. You're going to be turning to more than one place. That's all right. And we're going to take this month, the next four Sundays, and look at biblical prophecy, specifically future prophecy. Not just prophecy that's already happened, but prophecy that will happen in the future. We'll take it in order, and we'll start with the next big event in God's prophetic calendar. As John 14 begins, the scene is pretty bleak. If you're familiar with this context, it's the night before Jesus dies. He's in the upper room with his disciples, and he's just dropped the bomb, so to speak. He's told them some bad news. He said that he's going away, that one of them would betray him, that Peter would deny him, that Satan was at work against them, and that they all would desert him, and, and, and he's leaving. So no doubt the disciples are very discouraged, very disillusioned, 
How does this fit with our concept of the Messiah? I mean, this is the Passover meal that you didn't want to happen. And it happened. Well, John 14, look at how Jesus comforts them. Verse 1 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Up to this point, the disciples' only concept of the future with Jesus the Messiah was the kingdom of God. He'd been preaching it for three and a half years. He'd also been talking the last year about something called the church. But let's put that aside. The kingdom is what we want. And so when Jesus talks about leaving and, and going to the Father's house, these are concepts that are new to the disciples. And Jesus brings this up to comfort them. He tells them in the very first verse, don't let your heart be troubled. So the context of this revelation, of this prophecy that Jesus is giving is comfort. He's telling them, I'm going to my Father's house. And he says, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. You may have the old version that says many mansions, which is a bad translation because the the word there actually means like one of the side rooms of the temple. He's using the little side room of the temple as an illustration. And my father's house, thinking of the temple, there are many side rooms. Really, it's the word for apartment. So imagine that. You're going to die, go to heaven, and live in an apartment for all eternity. Well, there's more to it than that, of course. But Jesus' point is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And even if it is just a dwelling place, it's going to be a great place. And he says, if it, if it wasn't so, I'd tell you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then verse 3 is the wonderful promise. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and he's talking heaven. He's not talking the kingdom. He's not talking earth. He's saying, I'm going to the Father. And where the Father is is where I'm going to prepare a place. And then I'm going to come and get you and take you to be with me. So this is not the kingdom This is not the kingdom of God. This is heaven. This is heaven. And this is the first time in all of Scripture that the doctrine of the rapture is mentioned. Jesus introduces the rapture in the upper room at a Passover meal. And the disciples' heads are spinning because this is not something they have even conceived of before. Jesus isn't talking about coming again to earth to reign in the kingdom. He's talking about coming to get them and taking them with him to the place that he's prepared. Notice that. This is not the second coming of Jesus to earth. This is the coming of Christ to get his people to take them to heaven. Now, we'll talk about sort of the, the, the layout, uh, the, the timeline over the course of this month. But God's next big event for us in prophecy is what Jesus mentions here to the disciples the night before he leaves. 
It's the rapture. Uh, one of the clearest reasons that we have prophecy in the Bible is to give us encouragement. He told us that here in verse 1. But also look down at verse 29 for another reason. John 14, 29, a little farther on in this same conversation, Jesus says this, I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. One of the purposes of prophecy fulfilled is to give you confidence that God knows what he's doing. I've told you beforehand so that when it happens, it strengthens your faith. So there are several principles, or, or you could just say sentences, that we're going to pull from our lesson today. And here's the first one. And they're all very, very simple. The first one is this, prophecy. prophecy. <laughs> it's simple for you to say. It is very simple. Prophecy strengthens our faith. Prophecy strengthens our faith. That's one of the purposes of it, is to strengthen our faith. We can trust a God that knows the future, who has predicted the future, and without missing a beat, has always nailed it when it comes to fulfillment. I read not long ago about some wine growers in France that planned to sue their National Weather Service because they failed to predict a, uh, a hailstorm that devastated thousands of acres of vines. They said that if they had been warned ahead of time, then they could have properly prepared for it. And I thought, you know, today people will sue anybody for anything. But I also thought, you know, there's not going to be any lawsuits in heaven. No one's going to get to heaven and say, Lord, you didn't warn us that this was going to happen. Because regarding the future, we have been properly told what's going to happen. The future has been written. There's not going to be any lawsuits in heaven. The fact is, the forecast is very clear. Jesus is coming at any moment to get his church, to take us to be with him at the place that he has prepared. There's nothing we're waiting for. There's no sign in Israel's news. There's no uh, political event that's got to happen. There's no blood moon that's got to show up some October. Not even Jesus' face in a taco. We're not waiting for any sign from God. The only thing we're waiting for is Christ. That's it. There's nothing in the scripture that tells us this has to happen before Jesus comes for us. And that's a comfort, but it's also a warning. It's a comfort for those of us who love Christ, but it's also a warning for those who don't yet know him. That every single day that you put off trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins is a day that you are banking on a tomorrow that may never come. The point being, there's benefit of knowing your future. Think about it. If you knew what the stock market was going to do this year, you could make a killing financially. We know what's going to happen in the future, spiritually. And we can benefit from that information, just as we could if we knew the stock market for this year. Well, let's leave John 14 and make our next stop at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul takes up where Jesus left off 
and with the same inspired voice, elaborates on what Jesus began to teach his disciples about the rapture. Particularly, he notes what's going to happen to those believers who have died before the Lord comes. 1 Thessalonians 4, and let's look at down at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4 has an interesting context. If you read back up in, at the beginning of it, it starts off talking about uh, sanctification. They're doing well, we're told, verse 1, but he challenges them to excel still more, which is wonderful. It's a great challenge. You may be doing great in your Christian life, but you can always excel still more. And then he gets very specific, and he says, uh, your sanctification includes sexual purity, and honoring God with your body. Um, so he spends a few verses on that, which is interesting as he writes this. Uh, Paul wrote this from Corinth. And if you know anything about the culture of Corinth at the time, all Paul had to do is just look out the window and see a perfect illustration of what he's writing about here in 1 Thessalonians 4. But in the context of basically sanctification and excelling still more, he, he challenges them in verse 12 to behave properly toward outsiders, etc. But then verse 13, he makes a transition that goes right along with having a sanctified or renewed mind to thinking properly about the coming of Christ. Verse 13, he writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Let's pause there for a second and just say our second principle, prophecy gives us hope. Prophecy gives us hope. Because God has been faithful to a T in the past, we know that what he says about the future also is true. And we're also told in this passage not to grieve as those who have no hope. So prophecy gives us hope right along with our grief. You know, think about the last time you were at a funeral service for someone that you know was a believer. It's such a strange mix of emotion, isn't it? There's definite grief, especially if you knew them well, a family member or friend. There is grief at the separation. But at the same time, there's joy because you know they're with the Lord. You have at the same time the grief and the rejoicing. This is what prophecy does for us. You're rejoicing because of prophecy, because of something in the future that you know is going to happen. Not only their present state with God, but your present re, re, uh, reunity with them. Re, what would I say? The re, reunion with them, exactly. You're, you're rejoicing in that. And Paul gives us some theology that we've not gotten in other places regarding the, what we call the rapture. And look at the details of this just for a moment. 
First of all, he refers to those who are asleep. And he mentions it in, in the th- each of the three verses we read. Verse 13, those who are asleep. Verse 14, those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by asleep? Well, the word here for sleep is one of two, has one of two uses in the New Testament. It either means sleep or it's as a euphemism for death. A lot of times we'll speak of somebody as passing away. Well, we don't mean they passed away. What does that mean anyway? That's just kind of a, a, a nice way of saying they died because saying that they died is just a little hard we say they passed away, or even we'll just say they passed. Well, Paul is using the colloquialism of the day and speaking of sleep. In fact, it's one that Jesus used. Jesus spoke of, of a little girl that he was about to raise as being asleep. He spoke of Lazarus as being asleep, and he's going to go wake him. And it's a picture not of the soul being asleep, but of the body. Death is pictured as sleep because it, the body is going to wake up. Sleep is, ta- is referring to something because a person is going to awaken. When you are sleeping, you are also going to awaken. If when you are asleep, you don't awaken, well, that means that you're just dead and you stay there. But to, but to refer to a person who is dead as only sleeping implies they will wake up. So the phrase here, for those who have fallen asleep, is referring to those who have died. And interesting, as you look through the rest of the New Testament, the the theology of death and of what the soul is doing during the time of death. James' epistle says that in death, the body is without the spirit. James says the body without the spirit is dead. So when there is death... The spirit is not in the body. The body is is dead, but the spirit is not. Uh, Paul says that he desires, in Philippians 1, he said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. So to die is to be with Christ. Uh, Scripture never shows the soul as unconscious or unaware of itself in death. It is always conscience. Jesus told a parable one time of a couple of men who died, one named Lazarus, interestingly, and they were having a conversation, even though they were dead. They were having a conversation with Father Abraham, incidentally, who also had died. Uh, On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, who had been dead for centuries, were having a conversation with Christ. So even though the bodies are dead, the spirit is alive. Very much so. So those who have died as believers are present with the Lord. And even Christians, this is true. The examples so far uh, that I've given are either during the time of the Gospels or in the Old Testament. But even in the book of Revelation, the tribulation saints, tribulation Christians who die, are pictured as having a conversation with the Lord. So there is an activeness to your soul when you're dead. You're not just soul sleep or just doing nothing. Those who have died as believers with Christ are present with Christ in heaven. And Paul says here in verse 14 that God will bring with Jesus. Notice that preposition. He doesn't say to Jesus, 
but with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So if Jesus is coming from heaven, remember, Jesus is saying, I am going to come to you, and I'm going to take you to be where I am. So if Jesus is coming from heaven, Paul says that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So those who are dead will come with Christ at the rapture, and they will meet the rest of us. Let's, uh, let's continue to read here. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. I love that. We always talk about the trumpet blaring, but we never talk about the Lord shouting. I mean, picture that. Jesus coming down and shouting. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice Paul says, we who are alive. He includes himself in that, which means Paul expected it could happen any time, which means we're not waiting on anything for the rapture. There is no, nothing that we're waiting on. Paul includes himself as the potential we who remain, and Jesus could have come at any time even then and even now. The dead in Christ rise first, we're told. So when those who have died come with Christ, the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, their soul and their body in the grave will be reunited first before those of us who are still alive will be changed. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that this happens in the twinkling of an eye. And aren't you glad? Because if that really were to happen and you were like in a cemetery... That would really be a little frightening. I've never seen a movie portray that yet, but boy, wouldn't that be a, make a great movie? I'd like to see Stephen King try to do something with that. He'd probably mess it up. But. But, but the doctrine here is that it's going to happen, and it's going to happen in this order, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. We get our word rapture from that word caught up, not in the Greek, but in the Latin translation of the Greek. We get our word rapture from, uh, from that word. Of being, it's the idea of being caught up together in the clouds and meeting the Lord in the air. And then we will always be with the Lord. And again, the goal of mentioning this, verse 18, is comfort. Comfort one another with these words. So comfort from the pain of death, of, of not grieving like the world who has no hope, is one great application of the hope of the rapture. But the rapture had a far greater purpose than that, a very practical purpose, which we'll talk more about next week. But if you glance down the very next chapter, it's, um, it's about the day of the Lord. And this is what's called the tribulation. So we'll save that for next week. But there's a very practical reason that we are raptured. Because we are taken out of the world for God to begin to deal directly one-on-one -on -one with Israel again as a nation during the seven-year tribulation period. All right, so let's make another journey to the left and look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Comfort, protection, but there's still another application here. 
Paul expands even further on the blessed hope of the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, look down at, toward the end of the chapter there, verse 51. Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning we will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I think we've often heard verse 58 quoted, and it's a great verse, but keep it in its context. The reason that we can be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord it's because we're expecting that any moment our labor in the Lord will not be in vain, that the rapture will happen. This 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's wonderful defense of resurrection, beginning with the fact that there were some in Corinth that were saying that there is no resurrection, and Christ, uh, Paul was saying, well, then Christ hasn't been raised. But if Christ has been raised, then here's the good news. He's just the first of many. You're next. The rapture is our resurrection. The rapture is our resurrection. Jesus is called the first fruits from the grave or from the tomb. The first meaning there's more to come, and we are that more to come. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us that insight. Some have joked that only those with uh, no credit card debt will be raptured. And you know, that's a joke because, uh, you know, the rest will be left to the wrath of God after that. Well, it's a joke based on a theory called the partial rapture theory, and it's a theory that says that only those Christians walking in fellowship with Christ will, uh, will be raptured. Uh, we're going to get into that next week, and I'll do my best to take that ball and kick it right out that window. But Paul right here says in verse 51, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Not just, you know, those who don't have credit card debt or those who aren't walking with Christ. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, whether you are walking with him or whether you are in a season of sin and wandering, verse 51 still applies. There's nothing in Scripture that gives a legitimate exception to the promise that when Christ comes, he's coming to get us. In fact, when Jesus made that statement to the disciples in the, other, in the upper room, remember he was making the statement and the promise to men who were about to abandon him, to Peter who was about to deny him, 
to the rest of the faithful disciples who were going to desert him. He made a promise to each one of them that he was coming to get them. So even if we're in a season of sin, verse 51 applies. We will all be changed. I love that promise. Because otherwise, how would you ever have any confidence? Am I walking, you know, <laughs> did I miss the rapture? I love how the NIV puts it. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Prophecy gives us hope. All right, let's keep turning. You enjoying the fan, the fanning your face here? <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 5. So the rapture happens, then what? The rapture happens, then what happens? Well, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, as I mentioned, from Corinth, while he was living in Corinth. In fact, the book of Acts describes an incident that occurred while Paul was living in Corinth. You may remember in Acts chapter 18, it says that there was sort of a riot uh, along the main street there of Corinth. And if you've been to ancient Corinth, you remember the big, long main street, and in the middle of the main street of Corinth is a raised platform called the Bema. There's a, even a sign there that says B-E-M-A, just right there for you to read, Bema. It's the, it's the ancient judgment seat there in the city. And if, again, if you were to read Acts 18, you'd see where Paul was brought right in front of that judgment seat, and he was given sort of a quick little monkey trial there and was uh, exonerated and was able to leave. But the Corinthians would have remembered that in the life of Paul. And Paul used that illustration of Paul standing in front of the judgment seat as a reminder that we all will stand before a similar seat one day. So 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 6. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, let's just pause right there for a second and do some simple observation of those three verses. Notice Paul gives two options. You're at home in the body, which means you're absent from the Lord, verse 6, or, verse 8, you're absent from the body and at home with the Lord. It's one or the other. You are either at home in the body or you're at home with the Lord as a Christian. It's, it's not uh, that you're sleeping in your body. If you're dead, you're with the Lord. Verse 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the word there, judgment seat, is the word in Greek, bema. It was the, the very judgment seat. The, the, the Corinthians would have had this in their mind because they walked by it in the market every day. And they would have remembered Paul's experience there of being judged before the judgment seat. Paul latches onto that and he says that we're all going to appear before the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. Now, wait a minute. It says we're going to be judged for deeds, good and bad. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus died on the cross for my bad. What's this about? Great question. 
Jesus did die on the cross for your bad and for my bad. In fact, all the sins we've ever committed were judged in Jesus Christ on the cross. So what's this for? This is a judgment of rewards. That's it. That's all it's for. And when you take the big picture of prophecy, we know that this judgment can happen right after the rapture. So if the rapture can happen any moment, then the judgment seat of Christ, that is, standing before the, the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for rewards, that could happen today. That could happen very, very soon. So, but it's good news. Now, it says whether good or bad. What does that mean? So let's, this is 2 Corinthians, and I know this is going to sound really profound, but 2 Corinthians came after 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians, he had expanded a little more on this, so he's assuming that they, had, they remembered what he wrote. So let's flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at what Paul wrote with a little more detail. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3 10. Paul writes, According to the grace of God which was given me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will be, become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So let's pause there for just a second. Paul is using the building of a house or the building of a building as a metaphor for how we build our lives. And we're told that the foundation, that, that the work in which we build our life, as it were, is going to be revealed, the quality of our work in our life is going to be revealed with fire. And now, don't mix the metaphor. We're talking about a house and fire. What happens when a house burns? Everything goes except that which can't burn. The foundation is still there, and if it's got a, a, a chimney with bricks, the bricks are still there because those things don't burn. The point is there's going to be such a thorough judgment that only what is quality will remain. Fire is not involved. Fire is part of the house metaphor. But it simply means the thoroughness of the judgment is like fire in a house. And what is quality remains. And he gives examples like gold, uh, silver. These are things that can't burn up. But then there's wood, hay, stubble that burn up. Um, wood, hay, and straw. So let's keep reading. Verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So he suffers loss, meaning loss of potential reward. So that's what, that's what it meant in 2 Corinthians when he says that we're judged good or bad, that our works are judged. And if it was, if it was wood, hay, straw... If it was something that wasn't done, quality, if it was something that wasn't done with right motive, there's no reward for that. But if it is something that was done with quality, then we will receive reward. 
and we will receive a reward. Look at the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Paul writes, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then, now see this phrase, each man's praise will come to him from God. Every Christian gets something. Everybody gets something. Whether it's a lot or a little, everybody gets a reward. So whether you know it or not, somewhere in your life, you did something that's going to be rewarded by God. He has filled you with your spirit, with his spirit, in a way that you have honored him in some way. You have borne fruit because all Christians bear fruit. may not have realized it at the time, but, uh, but you did. But there's also an awful lot that we do that has mixed motives and that has wrong motives. And we're told here that, that the, uh, the, the judgment will judge, disclose the motives of our hearts. So here's the third principle, and it is a principle that is very searching. Prophecy tests our motives. When we look forward to what's coming and the judgment seat of Christ, realizing that the quality of what we will be judged on is the motive by which we've done what we've done, then that can really change why you do what you do. You realize, Lord, I'm not doing this to be noticed by people, because people aren't going to be the final evaluation. I'm doing this because, Lord, you see it, and as best I can, I'm giving you my motives, my true motives. And if there's something wrong in what I'm doing, if there's a reason that's wrong behind me, please forgive me for what I'm doing wrong. But as best I can, Lord, I want to serve you. But here's the thing, and I remember Dr. Toussaint used to tell us this. He said that he, he can't ever think of something that he did that, that wasn't laced with, that he wondered if maybe his motives weren't wrong. And can't you understand that? I understand that. Every single time I stand here, I struggle with motives. Uh, every single time that we do something with serving the Lord, there's the, there's the fear of man behind it. There's this reality of, of mixed motives. But the good thing is, because of this wonderful truth here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, each person's praise will come to him from God. That is a promise. That is something we have to look forward to. That God has so worked in our lives that we, that we actually did something commendable that he will commend us for and that he will reward us for. Well, that's a lot. And we've got a couple of minutes here. So I'm going to crawl outside the box for a second and ask you, do you have any questions about what we've talked about and, uh, or any clarification about what we've talked about? Just hold your hand up. Okay, so the question is, the person who has a soul in heaven, do they have a body? You know, for a long time, uh, I just kind of rolled along with the thought that, no, we don't have bodies. In fact, I had a friend one time that said he thought we just 
flew around in little Ziploc bags. <laughs> he couldn't give me a verse on that. But I remember Dr. Toussaint teaching us in this class uh, something that at first I disagreed with. And when you disagree with Dr. Toussaint, it, I really, it really bothered me because I thought, I've never disagreed with this man. And then I really went home and studied it, and I thought, you know what, he's right. Uh, don't you just hate it when you learn something new? It just offends your arrogance. But what he, but what he, what he showed us was, I think it's the parable in Luke 16 that talks about the, uh, uh, the person who is dead, Lazarus, and the rich man. It's that parable. And they're, so they're dead. And it talks about you know, dipping the tongue you know, in water and let me cool. It, there's, it's all over. So there, there's some implication there that there is a temporary body in glory. And what happens to that temporary body when we're resurrected with our permanent bodies that we'll have forever, the Scripture doesn't say. So, but great question. Yeah, I struggled with that for a long time. Anything else? Okay. We will all be saved as a reference to believers. Paul is writing to believers in the letter. And so when he says we will all be changed, he's, he's referring to all Christians. Yeah, great question. All right, any others? That, that's a great question. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next time because we're going to get into the tribulation. But one of the purposes of the tribulation is to uh, motivate Israel to repent. The kingdom doesn't come until Israel repents. And Israel, even though they're in the land, it's still very much Gentile-dominated. And um, Israel's not really in the land until they are in control. So uh, they're in the land just by the grace of God now. That's not very politically correct, but biblically <laughs> It's correct. Okay. Clyde, I think you had one. You'll be the last. Uh, I think that I've pretty well resolved this through the years, but uh, my wife convinced me early on that my eternity will be mowing the lawn in front of her mansion. <laughs> but Chuck has straightened me out that she's not going to have a mansion. Okay, so is there a question in that? or? <laughs> Is there a yard? <laughs> Let, let's just get real practical, right, Clyde? Yeah. Well, in the kingdom of God, for a thousand years, if you want, you can mow my yard. <laughs> but we will, have, uh, we will live on this earth, I mean this earth, for a thousand years, with Jesus Christ reigning the world from, uh, from Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in two weeks. We'll talk about the, the second coming and the, uh, the kingdom of God. So, well, I'd love to address questions. I know prophecy is not something that is just real easy, and it's not real easy for me either. But if you've got a question about it, my email is in the directory. Email me your question, and I'll try to work it in the series as it's relevant. So if that, if that would help. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you that you don't leave us in the dark 
that we're not left like so many other religions or worldviews, that we're just left saddled to common sense or struggling with what seems right when the reality is other people have different opinions and we just never know. You've given us the scripture. This wonderful book that we have in our laps has never missed it from the time that this scripture was written to this moment now. When, what it has predicted in history, if it has uh, been necessary to be fulfilled, it has already happened. Especially we think of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord. And from his own words, as we've read, the promise that he has that one day he will come again for us. Lord, we're grateful for the doctrine of the rapture, for the hope, Paul calls it, the blessed hope, that at any moment Christ could come and to receive us to, to himself, and we will be with him forever. Thank you for that hope. And Father, in the meantime, may that expectation be a filter through which our motives always go.